Hey, welcome everyone. Uh, thanks for joining us this afternoon. This is the Rebooting Education in the Post-Pandemic Era webinar series, sponsored by the Hoover Education Success Initiative at the Hoover Institution of Stanford. Uh, as you may know, the series is the outgrowth of a set of essays about what are the challenges and the opportunities for improving public education coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic. You can find those essays called How to Improve Our Schools in the Post-Pandemic Era on the HESI homepage on the Hoover website. This six-part webinar series runs weekly at this time through October 20th, so we are the third in the series of six. And today's topic I'm very excited to bring you is going to be a, a conversation about uh, the role of the media in education reform, fourth estate or fifth wheel. So I am Jen Vranick. I'm the founding partner of Education First, and I'm a member of the Hoover, the Hesse, the Hesse Hoover Practitioner Council, and I'll be moderating the conversation today and uh, from start to finish. Looking forward to that. We have three esteemed and distinguished panelists with us. So in alphabetical order, I'll share those and, and folks can wave. Mike Cohen, who is a fellow at CenterPoint and served previously as president of Achieve for 2003 through 2020, was also an assistant secretary for elementary and secondary, uh, worked for the president and for the US Secretary of Education in the Clinton administration. Welcome, Mike. Uh, Senator Manny Diaz is a panelist uh, coming to us from Florida. He serves uh, District 36 of Miami-Dade in the Florida State Senate, uh, currently is chair of the Senate Education Committee. Uh, prior to that was in the House of Representatives and as a former teacher and school administrator. Thanks for joining us, Senator, D Senator Diaz. Thank you. And last but certainly not least, Hannah Scandera is the current CEO of the Daniels Fund. Previously, Hannah was the Secretary of Education under Governor Susana Martinez in New Mexico for six years and also editor-in-chief of an online education magazine called The Line. Thank you, Hannah. So here's how the webinar will run. We will have uh, a lively and spicy, I hope, conversation among the panel for the next half an hour or so. And then we will uh, start asking questions from the audience. So please use the Q&A format in Zoom. Uh, we will be looking at the questions, looking for themes, trying to pull out um, the ideas that are really resonating and the questions, the hard hitting questions folks have for us and we'll screen those and then um, have a, a bring those to the conversation too. So we will have a lively hour. The panel is being recorded so it can be shared in the future. And as we close at the end, I'll also preview what's coming up next with the next uh, remaining webinars in the series. So without further ado, I'm gonna uh, ask each of our panelists to kick us off with a, their response to an interesting question. I'm gonna frame, it'll help frame up the day and then we'll just go from there to some uh, some conversation. So I think everyone who's on this webinar knows that the, the, the media education reporting as part of the media have, have changed drastically in the last decade, two decades. Uh, social media now is prevalent. Local newspapers don't have the resources and the readership and they aren't what they used to be. Um, philanthropy has taken a more active role in supporting journalism and framing journalism and so on. So I'd like to each have each of our panelists to help frame this issue of how journalism supports or undermines school reform. So maybe Mike, you could give us from your perspective as a, as a person who's been looking at this from around the country for a long time, tell us what you think the, in, in what broad education areas has the media advanced the cause 
in the last decade or so of school reform? And where has the media not advanced the cause so much? Good question. So I've had a couple of thoughts on, on that. And I, let, let me just preface this by saying, you know, as I contemplated this question, I've been in this field for about 40 years uh, and um, uh, trying to think through the big issues that I've been involved in and where and how has the media played a big role in it. And since most of my work has been at the national level, not at the local level, uh, that is going to color my response as, as well. So I would say of all the things that I've been involved in, the area where the media, I think, has been most constructive, most helping to inform the debate and the discussion has been around the whole issue of college and career readiness. This has been a central issue uh, uh, for the country in about for the last 15 or 20 years or so. Uh, and at its heart, right, this is an issue that has to do with how well are our schools preparing, uh, at least in the K-12 system, preparing kids for post-secondary success, whether it's in higher education, in job training programs, or in the workplace uh, directly. And for the most part, my experience has been uh, the reporting on this issue gets pretty serious and straightforward coverage. It reaches a lot of different, touches people's interests in a lot of different ways, given that it's very easy to relate to this and your kids and your grandkids or yourself for that matter. Uh, but you can, you can see a personal connection in this. And while it's a complex topic, it has not been, for the most part, an incredibly conflict or conflicted set of issues. Uh, and so I have found the reporting in this to be pretty straightforward and, mm -hmm. and, um, uh, and helpful. Was I also supposed to tell you one that I'm less enamored with? A little less sanguine about where, yeah. where's you know, maybe not as been as helpful. Yes. <laughs> the topic has been difficult. Well, the Common Core has certainly been a challenge. Uh, and so that, that has largely been a story about conflict. And um, uh, he, he, here's one thing that hit me the other day. I don't use, I am not active on social media at all. So most of what goes on there, I miss. But for reasons that I can't explain, I happened to be reading a, a scholarly article uh, uh, from the last year that compared the coverage of the Common Core with the coverage of the Next Generation Science Standards uh, in Twitter. And it turns out there was a dramatic difference, right? For Common Core, for every positive tweet, there were four negative ones over a pretty sustained period of time. On the Next Generation Science Standards, right, uh, for every 100 positive tweets, there were 11 negatives. That's a dramatic difference between the two. And in some sense, Right. When I read that, I thought, well, that says a whole lot, right, about uh, how the popularity or, or regard for the Common Core went downhill. Uh, the regard for the next generation science standards went uphill, but only among the small number of people who are following it, because uh, most of the world doesn't know about it. Uh, and that's probably because there was no enormous conflict over it. So at least those are some experiences that frame how I think and, and reflect on the media's role here. And so part of that is that coverage is also a reflection of the complexity, the controversy and the topics. 
Um, Senator Diaz, from your vantage point as, a, as a, an elected official in Florida, making state policy um, with particular goals and aims in mind, how have you partnered with or navigated the media to get good information to the hands of the people on the ground through the, about these policies? Where have you found so, success and challenge? So, so I, I'm going to agree with Mike here on the first term. I think that this is such a complex topic that the general population really doesn't get into the weeds of and, and, and understand the complexities of school reform, whether it be accountability or school choice or any of those things. Uh, that for the most part, there's been straight coverage. And, and what happens is I think it really depends on the publication and, and the reporter or the media member covering it. Because if the media member covered uh, has in-depth experience in education, like we do have some reporters in Florida that, that have covered it, that have the background to understand uh, really what's going on. And obviously in Florida, as, uh, as, as Hannah well knows, uh, we, we've been a lightning rod because we're always seem to be at the forefront of these reforms. And, and the coverage for the most part has been um, straightforward. But there are all those instances where there is the conflict and, and you don't get a, a, a rich, uh, deep coverage of what exactly is going on. And the headlines oftentimes will create some controversy uh, and really not explain in depth of what, what the changes, what the reform means for the actual student. Our, our uh, approach here has always been to be student-centered and, and move in that direction, going all the way to when Governor Bush was here and, and started, really kick-started that, uh, and, and we're still building upon um, his shoulders on what he did. But I think that, um, the public is, is much uh, better well-served when the reporters actually understand the topic or have background in education. And oftentimes in newsrooms, you know, that doesn't necessarily happen. You'll have people shift over that have no experience in education. I think it is helpful um, when you have specific outlets and, and social media has really blogs and, 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 and social media has really have given the opportunity for other outlets to come into the space and provide more in-depth coverage that really gets uh, granular. And, and there's, there's a, a set of those that, are, that I think are very helpful for those in the field. And then there's a set of those that, that are, because everybody in the general public doesn't, doesn't go through the weeds and, and read these publications that specialize on education reform. But when you get coverage from the, the, more of the mainstream media outlets and you have reporters that can really uh, dissect and explain what is going on, I think it is helpful in getting the message out. Now, sometimes it's what's left out that, that really, uh, I think, hurts reform because you create panic. Common Core is a great example of that. From the very beginning, uh, anyone who understands how Common Core <laughs> began uh, understands that it, that it was a, a good idea to try to raise the bar uh, as a nation because of what we've been facing. But uh, it turned into a political football and then was picked up, depending on the outlet, was picked up in a manner that wasn't necessarily helpful uh, to, to the movement. So uh, maybe Hannah, can you maybe pick up on some of these themes and talk to us about what, have you had that chance when you were chief and other roles to build those deeper relationships to get that, that more comp that more complex topics covered in a better way? What have you learned? 
Yeah, and I will say, um, uh, I, I guess I've served in political appointment appointed positions in California, Florida, uh, DC, uh, New Mexico, and Colorado now. And I think my general, I would double down on what both uh, Mike and the Senator said and say, um, when there is conflict, I my personal experience, um, but I think I can observe now distance wise as well that it still happens. <laughs> so um, yeah, there, there is a, a strong desire to sensationalize versus educate. Um, when, and, and then let me give a flip side of that coin. When there's something to celebrate, I found the media was incredible. If we were celebrating a school for, you know, any number of things that their kids had accomplished, I mean, and particularly in some of um, smaller towns in, in New Mexico, I can remember traveling and you know, it was the front page, the whole community was excited and rallied around that. And, and there was a, there was a um, pride in their school and what was happening and the, and the success. And I think in, in those situations, you know, you're just thrilled that, that um, uh, uh, journalists and, and other formats of media exist and that you're able to celebrate in communities or maybe even in your state, depending on what the issue is. When there is conflict, um, I find that uh, the, the emphasis goes to sensationalist um, uh, reporting, like the headlines that, that were mentioned versus hey, how can we unpack this in a way that is really helpful for a reader? It's almost, uh, I'm not sure the, you know, I think what's the end game? And the end game um, is less about education and more about, you know, uh, headlines. And so in some ways we shouldn't be surprised um, by that, but I think that's my experience is that's pretty pretty common. I, I think also, um, you, you nailed it when you said, is there, you know, when you develop a relationship with somebody and a rapport over time, over years, for example, it can make a huge difference for, for positive or negative. If they become, <laughs> if it becomes an adversarial relationship, um, you know, um, I was gonna, I'm trying to think of what's appropriate to say on a webinar. It, it, it can really not be fun. <laughs> if you can develop a, a trusting relationship then there's an incredible opportunity to build a narrative over time that brings that does bring education to to families and communities. And I I think um, when I was in the Secretary for Education in Mexico, I feel like I had both experiences. The Albuquerque Journal, and I'll give them a shout out. Their editorial board was diligent in understanding the issues. Would sit down and really take the time and and dive in and ask questions and follow-up questions. And, and I found that they were the most, I'll say this, they were the most um, uh, credible when it came to just giving, here's what's happening, here are the facts, here's how this thing works um, on complex and simple issues. And I think, um, so it can be done and the, uh, the media can be an incredible resource uh, often, I, I think on tough issues um, uh, there's a fail, there's a missed opportunity. Hannah, I just want to pick up on that and go a little off script. So, um, we're talking about complex topics. We're talking about long-term relationships. Uh, we've been talking about the, the difference in maybe in state and local coverage when you can build those relationships and the issues are, can be as localized as a school to what Mike was talking about, the national broad coverage. I mean, we're in a time right now where there's a big spotlight 
on just schooling in general. So I'd like to hear from you and others about how well do you think we're doing on that balancing of sensationalizing and celebrating, but really also educating the public about the complexity of schooling in this pan in, during a global pandemic. So I'll jump in and as a starting point, certainly I, so, and, and I'll confess, I'm not in a education, direct education role and an appointed role. So I have a little bit, of, there's a little one step removed. I'm not reading every education story every day, the same way I used to. Um, and, and here's my uh, one step removed um, experience. I think when it, especially when it comes to the pandemic and what's happening in our country around education, two things that I would point out that I think have happened that are overarchingly positive uh, and very big picture. One, I think, um, and maybe I'd say three, one, uh, the, the complexity that goes into all of this and how hard it is right now for schools, particularly early on in COVID when, you know, information was changing every day and, and you know, just how do you respond and react and what's the right thing to do and all those things. Two, I think the, the media shined a light on, and here I go, the duplicitousness of our unions and how they wanted to engage um, for our kids. And I feel like they, there, there was a multiple spaces and places across the country where I saw stories that put true sunshine on what I would call un, you know, the underlying intent. And it wasn't about kids for our unions during this time at, on, on a gross, you know, on a macro level. Um, third, I think um, the media did a good job of capturing how hard uh, this has been for parents. And, and that has created, I think, a demand for other options and more creativity. And I'm not saying we don't have a, a major issue on our hands right now um, for so many of our kids across our country and the gap that, that we have um, in, our, in our learning. Um, so the optimist in me says, though, that, that we have a, a greater engaged parent because of what they've been through and that this is uh, um, and we're and we're sh shining a light on that. And I think that that brings ultimately options and creativity and entrepreneurialism um, more directly into parents hands and ultimately um, uh, an opportunity for our kids to have other options as well. I saw some numbers the other day that charter school enrollment is up, um, up. in big ways at a time when it had been stagnant or declining. Home education is up, charters are up. Uh, I'll say Denver Public Schools, I live in Denver. Um, uh, there, it, this is the first time in 30 years that, um, um, that our enrollment is down and, and homeschooling numbers have doubled and we're up about 4% when it comes to charter enrollment. And safety and quality and, and what's happening, these are all a factor. Senator Diaz, uh, same question to you. What are you seeing that, uh, you know, kind of positives and negatives of the media's role in educating the public right now about education? Well, I, I think it's something that Hannah hit on there is it, what I've seen firsthand here in Florida is that the, the parent, we, for the longest time, we were trying so hard to figure out how to get parents more engaged in their child's education. And what, what the pandemic has done is because here we had students for a, a period of time uh, on a virtual platform where the students were at the dining room table and the parents were watching for the first time what was going on in the classroom, I think has created an incredibly intense uh, <clears throat> parent involvement 
movement where parents are paying more attention. And I think that leads to not only pay more attention to what's going on inside the classroom, but have paid more attention to what options are available. Here in Florida, obviously, we have charter schools. We have a pretty robust uh, and an, ex an expanded scholarship program for, for students and ESAs. And obviously, there's homeschool. And districts have had to compete here in Florida by creating more options themselves within their, within their programs, whether it be magnet schools, academies, or, or whatnot. And I think that the media has, um, on some occasions, done a good job of highlighting that and putting, in, putting the spotlight on the fact that parents are paying more attention and there's more of an expectation and a demand on what schools are doing. And when they're not being successful, what are they doing to get better? So I think that the media has done a good job of putting a spotlight. And, and that's not, um, that part of putting the spotlight is not unique to, to the COVID pandemic. Uh, it's happened here in Florida before where we've had uh, some media outlets do uh, a complete series on, you know, there was one on, on uh, five schools they called failure factories in one part of our state in which it really put a focus and it led the legislature to act, not that, that, that we were sitting around not looking for ways to act because we, our legislature has been pretty aggressive over the last 20 years when it comes to school reform and choice. But it really puts a, uh, a spotlight, which has led to legislation. Now we have something called Schools of Hope here in Florida, and which is a different breed of charter schools that come in, then they can come in direct into opportunity zones or where there are failing schools and provide parents another option. And there are additional funds to that for them to design their program, whether it be wraparound services, uh, eliminating certain teacher certification uh, requirements at those schools because they have different models. And again, in those instances of highlighting the crisis, the media has done a good job. What they haven't done a good job of is highlighting the solutions that have been provided here or the reform that's been done by the legislature in Florida to attack the problem that they highlighted. And, and it's a success story. When we talk about uh, highlighting those success stories, the Schools of Hope, I believe over the next 10 years, will make, make a huge difference in those communities that were being underserved by failing schools and those um, schools that were failing not just generations of students, meaning the grandparents, the, the, the parents, and then the kid going through these schools, we had one school district that was taken over uh, by the state and, and brought in a charter uh, operator to run the district where you had kids that if they started in kindergarten and gone through graduation, they had been in a failing school their entire life. And I, I don't think, I think there's some, some opportunities while they highlight the failures, they've missed some opportunities to highlight the results of the solutions and how we've evolved and, and found creative uh, and innovative ways to, to address those. Thanks. But I by and large agree with what the Senator said and what, what Hannah has observed about the impact of the cover, of coverage of education in the COVID era, uh, and particularly its relationship to choice and options and parents really being interested in that. That's less prevalent in the DC area where I live partly because DC already has a very robust charter school network. Um, and because the Maryland and Virginia sub suburbs by and large don't, right? Wow. And, and I've seen little that suggests that 
interest in, 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 in again, in Maryland or Virginia is picking up around the charter and choice issue. But what I am seeing that is beginning to concern me a lot is a fusing of the complexities of decisions about whether and how to open schools and when to let kids in and when not to let them in and all that stuff. That is getting fused with the highly charged right, political debates about masks and vaccination. And I don't think that is a healthy move for the education discussion going going forward. I think it is, it is going to polarize uh, what is an already fraught situation, right, even further in ways that my sense is it's hard to recover from. Well, Mike, just picking up on that theme, and I'll pause here and do a little advertisement. I've got a huge number of folks participating and listening in, and please do send in your questions to get get those going in the next few minutes. Um, so, so please put those into the, the chat. Mike, from your perspective uh, in the DC area, you've got your grass tops media, you've got mm -hmm. the post, you've got some well-respected um, local television. Uh, so you've got your traditional, and as Hannah said, you've got editorials, editorial boards, you've got columnists, you've got reporters. There's a wealth of that, but you also have your grassroots as, as Senator Diaz was saying, your blogs and your parent actions. And right now, I'm just, uh, I'd love your take on where you're seeing, um, it, it, particularly the grass tops media that I think, you know, you're, you're more plugged into since you said you're not a social media guy. Uh, are, you, are you seeing the complexities of that debate, but as they're playing out with schools, is it, are you seeing that um, being char characterized well in your local area? Or do you think it's sensationalist, too, too neutral? No, I think... I think the media is doing a good job of, first of all, who knows for sure, because I'm not all that plugged in. But what I'm seeing is on the issue that I raised, at least the connection between, you know, the, the sort of connection between the politics of vaccinations and uh, uh, what we do with, you know, how kids get back to school or not, or, or don't get back there. I think it's just a highly charged issue. And I see lots of stories in this area and elsewhere where school board meetings are dominated with fights over masks, whether kids are going to have to wear them or not, whether teachers have to wear them or not, whether the people at the school board meeting are wearing them or, or not. And I don't think the me I don't believe the media is sensationalizing that, though I do think they've drawn to a conflict. Um, but I think those conflicts are real and, and are, are an unfortunate part of, of the education story now. Well, the place I'm worried about is curriculum, and mm -hmm. I think we all believe in the quality, the, the, the quality of the teaching and learning that happens in a classroom is driven by the quality of that teacher's experience and perspectives, the ability to connect to students, and also the resources that they're using. And I think we're, we're heading into a time, too, where those are about to get, that has been more politicized, yes. um, in part because of parents were sitting at home supporting that learning. Um, or seeing what curriculum did or did not exist. So I just, uh, you know, I, there's legislative actions happening every day. Parents are getting more engaged. How do we turn that? How can we work with reporters to turn that a lot of concern into, and uh, I, I'd personally love to see that, that involvement that Senator Diaz was talking about 
uh, channeled towards supporting better quality curriculum and not just um, about concern and fear of, of perceptions of curriculum. Any of you want to comment on that, especially if there is the role for any kind of media in supporting that? My first reaction, Jane, is you're in a zone of wishful thinking. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I, I, do live in, uh, I do live in Seattle, Mike. <laughs> but, but, uh, more seriously, though, I think, I think it's hard to deal with that in the moment, right? Unless you've got really good relations with local reporters who are covering things. And even then, right, they're, they're just going to be focused on the conflict. I do think that, you know, Education Writers Association ought to be having sessions on, on this. Uh, and frankly, they ought to have been having sessions on curriculum anyway, because it is extraordinarily complicated, right? I, I would love to see a story about whether curriculum is really aligned to state standards or not. Just one, just one story would, would warm the cockles of my heart. But I don't expect to, <laughs> I don't expect to see that for a while. Uh, uh, but, that's, but that's important because at some point we've got to be paying attention to what's going on between teachers and kids in the classroom, what they're being taught, what they're learning, and whether all these things are coming together in a coherent and powerful way. Can I also, I, I think one of the things that as you were talking, Mike, I was thinking, um, I, let me flip this on its head for a minute. Yes, I, I, I hear the, the my, my heart would be warmed as well um, <laughs> on multiple fronts if we would just, you know, like, what is this stuff? And let's unpack it and, you know, so so there's some education going on, right? Not just a, not just the narrative uh, about <laughs> um, the education uh, dynamics. But I also think we have to ask ourselves, would people read it? And I, I just want to say, you know, I think, you know, we're in a space and time where we like one-liners, you know, we, uh, we have a lot of, you know, instant, I want, just give me the bottom line or give me that, you know, that one piece that I can hold on to or cr a quick grab. And so, um, I do think there's some responsibility as readers, as the audience, what are we, what are we consuming and, and what are we looking for? And I, I, I think, uh, you know, is this a, an issue of um, not, not great reporting on some of these issues, or is it an issue that our readers are more interested in quick, quick, quick uh, hits on different topics? And I think it's a combination, but I just want to name that, that there is a, there's a responsibility as readers as well. And what we, uh, we, we um, from a demand side, what are we demanding and, and what are we consuming? 30, 38 second TikTok videos, for example. Right. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, and, I, and I think I think this the social media phenomenon, one of the negatives that has come from the kind of the 24-hour news cycle and the on the on-demand uh, information that is provided by social media is exactly what Hannah mentioned is that the the readers uh, have become um, consumers of, of uh, information that is instant gratification and not about the details of what is, is affecting the education. At the end of the day, schools are in the business of educating our, our students. And what what's happening now, well, first of all, as Mike mentioned, you have all of these stories have, especially here in Florida for, for a while, have been about this, this, this mass, not mass battle. 
And that takes away all the attention on what we really need to be focusing on. And that is, in reality, the COVID slide. You know, you, you have summer slide as it is. We're, we're in two years in uh, academically almost of, of, of this, the effects of COVID on our education and what is happening in the classroom, not the battles over whether a school district requires masks or doesn't require masks, but what is happening to the student with the main focus of, of what these uh, schools are supposed to be doing, which is educating the child. And unfortunately, that doesn't doesn't sell newspapers or get get clicks um, because it's not sensational. It's hard to sensationalize curriculum and whether it's you know match the standards and what are our kids learning. And in, in Florida now, we're we're embarking on a change of our assessment and the way that we're going to assess our students and using progress monitoring along with an assessment. And and you know what are what does that really mean? For the student and being student-centered, and the output that we're that we're getting uh, with the ultimate product, which is the students that, that graduate our, our schools, that's not being covered, other than again some niche uh, publications or or websites that specialize in education or education curriculum or reform. Uh, that that is uh, a product, I think, of social media, the twenty-four hour news cycle, and you know the sensational headlines that that people are consuming. Oh, I just I'm going to make sure I understand, Senator Diaz. Did you just say that the state of Florida, which has just announced some pretty major changes to its assessment system, and that information is is getting only niche coverage so far? So far, it's gotten uh, only niche coverage, and I and I think part of that, in their defense, is that that we haven't put out details yet on what exactly it's going to look at. So there has been some buzz about it. Uh, yeah. Because anytime in Florida, especially if you're going to change the accountability or the assessments or anything of that nature, it's going to get buzz. Uh, but I think it's still being drowned out uh, by the fact that there's this conflict uh, about some of the COVID protocols. I want to push back a little bit on this, even though I'm the guy who introduced this as, a, as, as an issue around COVID. I do think that the conflict is getting a lot of attention, but I think beneath the surface, and this is basically my experience with our friends and neighbors, uh, most of whom have grandchildren who they're, who they're worried about. And at some level, the question of masks or vaccines or all that, all that, yes, there's a political element to it for sure, but it is also a safety issue. And that's what I think has so many parents and others concerned about it, right? The question they have to ask themselves is, will my kid be safe if I send him, you know, when I send him to school? And they may have different views about what is going to promote safety, but I think that is what makes it such a fraught, fraught issue and why it is at the moment easier for parents to get interested in that, right, than the direction that assessment is going to take in uh, in Florida, which seems, and I don't mean to minimize anything that you're doing there, but just again, my experience as a as a friend, neighbor, and parent and grandparent, it's the concern about the health and safety of kids that makes most of the other education issues we spend our time on seem relatively not urgent right now. I would I would agree, Mike. I think that's the number one concern of any parent or caregiver. Uh, is my child safe when I drop them at the door? Um, we have a question from the audience about just on this topic. And 
And what is the space right now? These are the hot issues. It would be almost it would be irresponsible of mainstream media not to be covering them. On the other hand, how do we uh, is there are you seeing bright spots where I felt like in the last year and a half during, for example, when um, states that were fully closed for most of the year, there was a lot more conversation about what's happening with virtual learning, what's the quality our kids learning, learning loss. It's not a term I love, um, but um, I'm not seeing that right, right in the school reopening of the last six weeks has just felt like it's all about masks, masks, and critical race theory from my perspective. Um, va- vaccine mandates, we'll, we'll put that in. And then of course with uh, the lawsuits and that has to be covered, but are we seeing any kind of conversation about what does return to school look like? What do we know about kids about in terms of like the quality of what they're being taught and what we know about what or what we don't know about learning? Where's the space for that? Yeah, Anna, I sure? don't I don't see it. I, I, I agree that um, on the whole, uh, we're, we're on, you know, on CRT, we're on mask issues and and vaccination. We are not on we're not on school and kids. So I just uh, I, I, I don't see that. I, I, I hope. Hope my colleagues uh, have a different view. No, I, I, I agree with Hannah. I, I, I'm not seeing that uh, in the coverage either. I, I, I think we're still continuing to be consumed by that. And I get Mike's point. That's the, uh, you know, the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You, you safety first. But at the same time, I think there are things going on. Kids are back in school. Uh, they're not sitting in front of their computer on their dining room table anymore what is going on with the return to school? What are the effects on the students learning going forward? Um, there's just not a lot of, at this point, there's not a lot of coverage. Maybe that'll change as, as uh, we get further into the year. Well, okay, so let's, let's, let's I feel like we're in this, this pendulum of negative and positive and optimism and, and some dismay. So, you know, Hannah, you talked about celebrations and being able to say, come and, come and, come and see the school in action. So a lot of a lot of local media are looking for good stories. They they are looking for leads, and so policymakers can give leads to journalists that need to be stories uh, that need to be told, and those can be bloggers or traditional journalists. So I'd ask each of you to think about what are the stories that we need to be telling in the next couple of months, starting now. Um, is it highlighting that unfinished learning? Is it the disparity? of uh, experience that children are having? Is it the need for more options? Uh, tell us, give us some specifics of where you would say, what are the themes you'd like to see getting some attention alongside vaccines, CRT and masks? I jump in and say, I'd love to see more about this. Uh, and the Senator brought this up too. Um, parents being more engaged and, and what's their story as the as they're navigating now with more as a more informed parent, frankly, after the last, you know, two years, what is their story? How are they, how are they finding what's best for their child? Having mm-hmm. spent probably more time with their child or children and also uh, specifically on the education piece, what is there? And I think there could be some really positive stories in that, right? Like how did, what did this lead them to and why, what are, what were the motivating factors? And and highlighting if they're choosing maybe another school that they think is going to serve their child better, celebrate the school. Why? What? What are they doing differently? And and highlight those pieces. So I think there'd be a real opportunity on the positive side to share the narrative of some families who 
um, are navigating differently because they actually have experienced something firsthand um, and, and how that's playing out for um, a, a better education for their child. Uh, so that would be a positive that I think we could, we could see and might inspire more creativity and, 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 um, and um, entrepreneur, uh, entrepreneurial ideas as we look ahead in the education space writ large. And I, I agree. I think that, that, that when I talked about parent engagement and how that's a positive, but what are the results? What are the action items that, that have resulted from that parent engagement? Or is it just that these parents are, are going down to the school board to talk about what they've been seeing in their classrooms? Is it the, the options that are available and which options are they taking uh, advantage of and how is that going? So if they decided to pull their, their student and, and go into a, start a homeschool program, how, what are the results? What, what are they seeing? How do they feel about that? Um, the other options, if they're taking a scholarship and going to a private school instead, what are the, you know, what are the uh, outcomes there and how did that change uh, compared to what they were seeing in the classroom? And there are positive stories there that I think need to be told. I think, unfortunately, sometimes the media is hesitant to do that because it vindicates some of these policies that oftentimes the media has railed against in the whole, the old story of, well, you know, you're, you're taking money from the public schools and, and, and taking it out of the public school system and giving it to private schools or, you know, having more charters and that's pulling from the private school. Well, my argument always against that is no, that we, we, our vision, my vision is that we fund the child's education and where that takes place really should be in the control of the parent. But what does that look like? How, what has the parent engagement resulted in? What, what, what are the options that they've taken advantage of? What are the positive stories that have come of that uh, for those students? Can I tag team with that too? The other thing I'd love to see is who's, who's getting it, who's doing it right, so to speak? Who's doing accelerated learning and seeing genuine results for kids that we should all be paying attention to and saying, hey, what did they do there? And there are schools that are doing that. And, and those are the folks we need to highlight, spotlight, and ask the, you know, questions about what did they do early on? How did they create the hustle to get to where they are today that actually is accelerating learning uh, for kids in a time where we're not seeing that for a lot of other kids? So I think there's, there's an incredible opportunity to highlight what works in a very, very, uh, because everything's on, on steroids one way or the other, right? The learning loss and, and, the, and the, um, the gaps we're gonna see, but also if somebody said it right, it's on steroids because it's so much more dramatic than a traditional uh, school year five years ago. So I, I do think there's a real opportunity to highlight who has closed gaps in a time like this and how are they accelerating learning right now in a way that we should, you know, take a second and a third and a fourth look. Mike, any, what would you add? Yeah, two things. Um, all right. One is I'm going to get wonky for a second uh, because most not of the- It's not going to get reported, Mike. It's not going to get reported. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's just keep this among ourselves then. <laughs> uh, most of the data that's been available for the last year plus right, about what is incorrectly called learning loss comes from tests that don't really do a very good job of measuring what it is we want kids to learn. 
And I think we need to be, I don't know how to deal with this from a, from a journalist point of view, but I think we just need to be cautious about what measures of learning or gains or achievement are used because they are not all the same. They're not all equal. Uh, and we can, we can get the story wrong or the story can be gotten wrong uh, if, if not done carefully. So that's one. The second thing is I do think it would be, I'd love to see some newspaper, some, some journalists um, invest the time and effort to follow some kids over a long haul, right? Because um, I think it's an open question as to whether um, more charters, more private schools, more innovative schools, etc. they all sound good, right? But it'd be nice to have some, some, first of all, some hard data, but even some good stories, longitudinal stories that talk about what's happened to kids who started in one type of school and wound up in a different kind of education setting and how how is that work just plain descriptive i think would be very uh, very important and very helpful you know mike it's funny because as as hannah and the senator were talking i was thinking the same thing as where are those multi-part series that follow a school over the course of a year or follow a family and some kids like i i haven't seen as many of those i don't is that is that is that we or can we even have that kind of journalism outside of Heckinger Report and trade media. Can we have that in the mainstream media these days? Is there an appetite? Does the business model support it? Anyone want to take that? Jane, I think the fact that you have to ask that question. It's rhetorical. <laughs> clue, clue as to what the answer is. But, but I, I think like to see it. it's what we're craving, right? Is we, yeah. we want to know more than that soundbite, as folks have been saying, which is, is real tough right now. Mm-hmm. We have a question from the audience that I think picks up on this that I'll, I've been I've been kind of paraphrasing some of the audience Q&A already, uh, but a question around data. Um, you know, Mike, you brought up the quality data are not created equal mm-hmm. um, in some of the technical assistance work that my organization has been doing with school districts in various states. And it doesn't matter really what the politics or the geography of those states are. The same kinds of challenges are emerging. There's data we do and don't have from assessments. We don't have a lot of data on attendance, uh, on on who was people who've been returned to school. If schools offered a fully in person, a hybrid, virtual options, school districts aren't 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 necessarily even able to understand uh, and track which students are choosing what options. So I think that gets more and complex, more and more complex when we talk about non public school or non traditional school options too. So. Um, what, what, how can we help the media, how can the media be a, a, a conduit here to help parents understand the data uh, and understand what the data do and don't tell them? Because I think we all want, we all believe the data we produce are supposed to help not only us as policymakers, but parents make better decisions and teachers make better decisions and so on. But there's a lot of big black box for most people about data. So is this an, a, a space for a fruitful progress, Hannah? Jen, I think, I think you're asking the right question, but with one, one caveat or push, and that is you started by saying, and I, I um, fundamentally agree, there's not a whole lot of data right now. 
we, you know, we opted out of a lot of our pass pathways for data for, and, and in some cases, you know, I, I mean, understandably so I, I question and would push on that because now where we are, we don't, I, I'm less clear that we actually know or have it to report on. Right. Um, so I think that's, um, can the media play and, and can, uh, journalism play a role in that? Absolutely a huge role. And I mean, I can remember doing statewide rollouts of assessment data or, or attendance data or graduation rates or, you know, things that were moving or one way or the other. And, and, and uh, was very grateful that the information was being reported and, and put out there for uh, all of our communities to see and know. I'm, I am less clear now how much we have <laughs> to, to actually give real context um, uh, right now. And I, I think it should be done. I just would push a little bit on, um, do we have it to, to actually share? Yeah, and I think that that's not only in the space of the progress of the students, but also you mentioned attendance. And, and in Florida, we were dealing with trying to find these students that went missing from, from the school districts, didn't know where they were during the pandemic. And we don't know if they went, you know, some of them, we didn't know if they had gone to homeschool, if they had moved out of the state, if they have gone somewhere to a private school and not reported it. So I think it's tough to cover something without having real data. And again, a, a lot of, we opted out of a lot of our, of our uh, mechanisms for collecting some of this data. Some of the data is, is not clear. And so it, it, it becomes hard to report on something like that without, and I, and I hopefully will have a clearer picture towards the end of this year than, when, than we've had throughout uh, most of the pandemic. And, we, and data are critical for us as leaders and wonks and parents and others like stories. So at least we need to get some stories told, I think, as Mike and Hannah were saying. Uh, earlier we talked, to, I think Hannah, you brought up that you're seeing a, a, a increases in choosing all sorts of different schooling options. And Senator Diaz, you're working to make those more available. Um, you know, how much coverage do you think that's getting? And what and if, if it, is it getting enough? What could we do to entice more awareness raising about options to take advantage of this moment? Because so that more families, including those with less access to means uh, and information can choose. I think unfortunately, sometimes what happens in the media is that those options are counter to you know, I, I don't want to be cynical, but to an agenda that 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 the the media outlet may have in in pushing that the narrative of, of only the traditional public school, the district school, and and they by going into these stories or, or or publicizing the options that are available, they may feel like they're going to open the gate because they're 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 making it more available for some of these parents who are in these situations that they, and they may choose to take advantage of it and don't have the information or the knowledge. It, we're much better off today than we were a decade ago with you know, the internet and social media being able to find, find information on these programs. But I think that the media sometimes may be hesitant, and I may, I may be a little bit skeptical on that, but hesitant to highlight these programs with the fear that they're gonna end up causing uh, parents choosing that uh, and, and, and as a better option for their student. Yeah, I think the, so I, you, you've taken us into some, we've been in controversial territory, but I feel like it's, we're gonna wait right back in because we have another question. Um, let's just talk, Hannah, you went there earlier 
Um, but what about, um, yeah, say more about the interactions with the teachers unions and the media. They, there has been, you, you, you called that a bright spot of the pandemic, that the coverage has, has, uh, has been maybe more balanced. Do you see, can you apply that going forward? What, how do, what, would, what could that look like? What would you want it to look like going forward? Well, um, yeah, I considered it a bright spot from the vantage point of, um, I feel like, you know, there were um, you know, clear, transparent narrative, um, at least in some, some pieces I read around what unions said at one point and how they switched their story to another and, and how it was um, more centered around as, as they exist and are supposed to be more centered around teachers than kids. And so that that um, I felt like that's, I think that's an important story or, or reality that folks need to see and know um, as we go forward. And, and so when I think about the future and what does that look like? I don't know. I just, I just think that was a, it was a telling moment that revealed something uh, that, that, uh, that we in, in our communities need to see and know and, and acknowledge um, as we think about um, uh, where we go from here. Mike, what about you on this question? Where do you see that spotlight going? Do you think that the, that it could revert to how it's been or do you continue to see more and more transparency in the conversations about the union's uh, influence over education actions and decisions? I'm honestly not sure to tell you the truth. Um, partly, I, you know, my son is a teacher um, and so while we were talking, and he's not active in, in, in his local union, and his local union is not active, uh, and he's in a very conservative uh, part of his state uh, and community. <coughs> Most of our conversations with him about back to school have been, again, will he be safe there, right? And the... We, we all, we all, my wife and I, uh, were uh, relieved when shortly after school started, the district decided to actually require masks uh, for teachers and kids. Um, and that just seemed like a smart move to me. And I had, I had you know, in, in the interest of my kid in mind uh, for that, but that seemed like a pretty important, um, important move. And I thought it was probably going to be helpful for, for uh, students as, as well. Uh, whether, um, w how this plays out over time, um, I, don't, I don't know. It is important to attend to. Um, uh, uh, I, I did notice the same things Hannah noticed about uh, unions in some places shifting, shifting positions. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but everybody's shifting positions on some of these issues right now, starting with the CDC. Uh, so it is, it, it is just a fraught time. Um, and I think you're far more generous than I am, Mike. Yes. On this <laughs> issue, probably so. I'm just going to name that. I, I mean, true, lots of changing things, but Actually, uh, actually, what I was trying to say, and I, I know I interrupt you, but I, I just want to clarify something. Go right ahead. What happened is we actually, for the first time, reported on what I think is a consistent trend of our of 
and yes, I'm going to gross generalization mm-hmm. of unions writ large. Like we actually saw the, you know, the different narratives that I think happen often and, and are not actually sunshined. And so I think that's the distinction I would make is there was actually a sunshining of some flip-flopping uh, in the best interest of, and I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to separate for just a minute here, unions versus teachers, because I actually think the, the baseline is often set from a very top-down perspective. And I just would say, I think we, for the first time, saw some sunshining that I think should, have, uh, should be happening more regularly. So if there's a positive for me, I'm like, hey, let's keep doing this. Let's keep sunshining the total conversation uh, in, in, in the narrative of, of whatever's taking place at the time. So I, would, I just would make that distinction. No, I was just say, I'm, I don't have a problem, Hannah, with what you with what you said, um, I just don't. Uh, all, the only point I was trying to make is that, again, I'm looking at this, first of all, I have not had to deal with the issues that you've had to deal with um, uh, vis-a-vis unions. Achieve never got in the middle of those issues and um, happily so. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when I think about, you know, again, when I think about teachers going back to school, I don't see it as a union issue. I see it as is the is the district making decisions that are going to keep everyone in school safe, right? And in the con in that context, right, the district my son teaches in did not appear to be taking that stance, and then they did, and I think it was a good move. And I, and I think to bring back to the point that, that Hannah was making about the, the distinction between the teachers union and the teachers, I think as it, and this is, again, this is a gross generalization, teachers, for the most part, are interested in getting to work, working with their students, helping their students, and, and, and that's the job. They, they, they get into this job because they love it. And sometimes the politics of the union um, leadership or the union's political you know, uh, agenda, it doesn't jive with what, with what the actual uh, rank and file teachers that are in the classroom trying to do their job. And I think that's never covered. Like, this is the first time where something like this has a spotlight, where if you talk to individual teachers and what they're designed, sure, they want to be safe. Uh, there's all those precautions, they, but they wanted to be back in the classroom with their te- with their students. And I think for the first time, there was a highlight of that uh, and, and districts in this in in this in that situation oftentimes are trying to make decisions and have to deal with the posture of the union leadership and are, are not necessarily really polling or surveying or trying to find out what their what their actual rank and file teachers are feeling. And so that's where I think uh, it's it's swept under the rug. It's it's not it's not covered. Uh, and there's there's a clash there that I think. Uh, provides an opportunity for reform and change and improvement in our in our education system. Uh, that that's uh, a really good place to maybe bring us to our final thoughts. Um, it feels to me as if uh, we are. It feels to all of us that we're in an incredibly unique, difficult, challenging time, and so we're all caught up in the the hyper. Uh, hyper complexity and controversy of now. Um, and these are not light issues. These are very difficult. I would like to ask each of you to sort of think beyond, think about a year or so from now and just tell us what's an aspiration that you have uh, 
for what the, the media are saying about schools in the place where you live. If you could just take and think, maybe it's a headline you'd like to be seeing more often or a, a form of coverage, but um, I, I am a, 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 an irrepressible optimist. So a year from now, what would you like the media, that sunshine to be shining a spotlight on? I'd said it before and I'll say it again. I think in, in a year from now, we might have even more of a narrative to tell around, hey, who, who demonstrated accelerated learning and what did they do and what do we have to learn from them and championing them as a school or a district or, or whatever you know, mode and, and space and place that, that we're seeing this and, and tell their stories. And, and by the way, and if they're different, because maybe there's lots of folks who saw incredible accelerated learning, I, I, that, which you said, you know, and I'm the optimist too, and <laughs> that they saw all of that. So let's show different pathways, because my gut is there's different ways to accelerate learning for kids. And it would be an incredible, you know, kind of narrative over, over a time to spotlight different, th- different things and different spaces and places and, the, and how they, they excelled and accelerated learning. Yeah, I think, I think the, you know, high, highlighting the courageous steps or innovations outside the box that, that schools, teachers, districts, private schools did to get that accelerated learning, to get students out of the COVID situation and adapt to what the, the obstacles that they're dealing with and how it was successful, where it was successful. Telling those stories, I think, mm-hmm. are incredibly powerful uh, and they benefit the parents and the general public as to what our schools are doing uh, to get out of this and, and what changes permanently, you know, whether, you know, we've seen changes because of COVID where you have remote work and people have found powerful tools like what we're doing here right now, where, where you're able to, to conduct meetings or webinars virtually. I think the, those changes that sometimes take a lot of courage, but may be aided by the fact that you're facing a global pandemic and gave them the impetus to be able to, to, to actually uh, put them in, 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 into, into uh, put them into practice and, and the success stories that come from that and, and the acceleration of learning and the success that comes from that. So if we're thinking about, you know, what, what I want to see the media cover a year from now or so, first of all, I hope COVID is in our rearview mirror by then. I'm not, not at all confident about that, but I hope it's in the rearview mirror. Secondly, in the context of the ideas that both Senator and, and Hannah talked about, which is looking at what's happening, wh- wh- where we're seeing acceleration in, in rapid progress, uh, I think that's important. I think in order to see that, at some point, we're going to have to figure out or help the media figure out how to deal with the intersection of curriculum and instruction and professional learning and support for teachers, because there's no way we're going to get a whole lot, you know, a whole lot better outcomes for kids if that set of issues are not handled much more effectively than than they are now. And it still remains the case that for the most part, right, um, those oppor- the opportunity to learn for kids is still a function of race and neighborhood and income and poverty and the like. And so as we look at the various strategies that schools are doing of all kinds, let's make sure we're paying attention to the inequities that are still baked into the, into the system and see if we're making progress on those. 
would that I could wave a wand on all three of those because I those those give me those give me some uh, some some feelings of optimism. I wanted to. Uh, we're we're more than out of time. I just want to say thank you so much to Senator Diaz, to Hannah Scandera, and Mike Cohen for joining us today. Terrific ideas, commentary. Also, thanks to those of the audience who offered questions and who've been listening. Um, there will be a recording of the session posted on the HESI homepages at hoover.org. Uh, please feel free to revisit or share it with others and you'll find other recordings there. And I'll do a quick plug for next week. Hope you will also join us. Uh, and many of you asked questions in the chat about this. Can we choose our way to better schools? I think it, we could see it as like a part two of today's conversation as well. So thanks again to everybody uh, and enjoy the rest of your week. Thank you. Thank you.